guys, what's up? I was recently interviewed by Nakia Reed. Her podcast, Tangible Remnant. It's a podcast, talks about architecture, sustainability, preservation, race, gender, color. You can get it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Nakia and I go back 2012, 2013. I did a series of women in architecture events and she showed up to one (laughs) and it was her and I met April too that year it was like how do I not know these two black women and they were like how do we not know about you I I am rebroadcasting the interview between us if you want to hear her intro and then the same interview check her out and also you should check her out in general she has this one episode called education connections and the color of law she read the color of law book and she gives her take on it and she had me laughing because it's so her personality shined in that conversation when you're networking back in the day when we used to go to functions um, especially in architecture whether it be a seminar or happy hour or, you know, some vendor has some type of showcase showing their products or whatever, you're usually the only one in the room. You're usually the only black woman in the room. So when you see another black woman, you're like, hey, and you definitely haven't met them. You're like, hey, hey, how, hey, who are you? Let's, let's share some stories. It's probably more difficult now. Well, no, because there's a there's ten thousand webinars, right? So you you show up to a webinar and what do you do? How do you network in a webinar? How does that work? You, you can go into rooms and you can put yourself in a smaller group. So instead of having twenty five people or fifty people, you, there's an opportunity for you to meet five people. How are we going to connect. And I feel like I am connecting more and more with people, more international people for sure, because of this pandemic, but it's, it's missing the local, it's missing the randomness of meeting people. How do we solve this problem? Because that's how I met Nikita. Like that's how I met April. It was through an event. The Noma conference was this weekend or this past, yeah, this weekend. And I'm curious, how did you guys network? I know they had some, like a, a Jeopardy. Was it Jeopardy? And I wasn't, just just to let you guys know, I, even though I did two workshops, I was unable to attend the entire conference. I was there for the, for the Black Women Architecture Brunch, which celebrated the 500 licensed Black African-American female architect huge 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 celebration (laughs) that that took place during that call and so needless to say I I was hoping to network somehow even like through the the breakout session but unfortunately it wasn't really an opportunity to connect with strangers or to hear other women's stories and I mean, maybe we should just get back to that some way, somehow. Even with the panel, the Vortex, the way it was set up, we couldn't really 
interact with the audience the way that we would normally interact doing it face to face. And, and, you know, that's, that's the challenge with virtual webinars. Besides the networking, it's the connection. I don't know how we can get out of this. It's kind of weird, right? It's that parallel of how I am meeting strangers through Twitter, through Instagram, but, you know, the sole purpose of, of attending virtual conferences is to meet strangers. So it's it's interesting. It's interesting. And I still haven't really figured out, or maybe anybody else haven't figured out. Oh, if you have figured out, please DM me and let me know. How are you meeting people? So, yeah. But again, this is a rebroadcast. I did not mean to rebroadcast this, but this past week has been really hectic. And the episode that I was supposed to edit, I never got a chance to edit. So you get this. So I hope you enjoy. So I wanted to uh, get you on the podcast, one, because what you're doing with Arches Polly, your podcast inspired me to not be afraid to use my voice, particularly as a Black person in the design profession. So thank you for that. And so I wanted to chat with you a little bit about what got you going on Arches Polly and what are some of the reasons that got you started in that one? Well, it kind of happened haphazardly. It all started with a group of us, actually. One thing I loved about our group is that we were honest and we we were, were all diverse and our conversations were always political. In the office, outside the office, we we had difference of opinions and we respect one another. And so I had this idea that, hey, you know what, we should record and post our conversations because we really got deep into a lot of topics, both related to politics, because, you know, we are in Washington, D.C., Mm-hmm. And in architecture as well. So I bought the domain name and the website, and we made one podcast post. And then we all left the firm, went our separate ways, moved to different areas. And it was very difficult for us to come together again. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of sat with all this uh, resource basically just sitting there and I was like, I'm not, I already paid for it. I might as well. And as far as the topic and it changed or I changed it, I was having difficulty in taking my exams, my architectural exams. And I, you know, even went to a therapist and everything and I had to sit back and analyze why did I get an architecture in the first place? And so I looked back into my past and how I grew up. And that was the spark that was like, hey, you know, I'm going to study architecture. And I figured that maybe I should research and figure out where I live and like investigating where I live. And so that became my podcast. And, you know, I am blessed to grow up in Chocolate City and to have the resources of all these Black architects. So growing up, or I must say growing up, in, the, in high school, I interned in a Black firm. And that was my basis. I learned so much from them. Even to this day, the stuff that I always go back to, and it pops up, I was like, oh, that's what they're talking about. Oh, that's mm-hmm. what they meant. So that also became part of it, is interviewing my friends and seeking out people of color. Right. Um, Or people who believe in the community, because it's not just people of color, obviously, but, you know, white folks as well. 
Right. Yeah, that's one of the things that I, to some extent, took for granted a little bit once I moved back to the D.C. area was the fact that there are so many Black architects and Black professionals of color that are doing really interesting and great things in the city, in the area. Coming from Roanoke, where it was not very diverse, and even living in Blacksburg, which is a total misnomer, there's not many Black people in Blacksburg, but being able to then come to D.C. and have the option to talk to so many different Black architects, knowing that our numbers are low, we only make up like 2% of the profession in terms of licensure, but just knowing how much architecture touches the built environment and everything that we do and the lasting impacts that it has. So I know on your podcast, you were talking about the urban renewal and the housing project that you grew up in and the impacts that that had on you. So then what are you finding as you're doing more research on the different housing projects in the area? One of the shocking things that I came across was that everything is planned. Mm-hmm. When I was talking to uh, Sarah Schofield, mm-hmm. I didn't know that Covenants had the oh, yeah. disclaimers of do not sell to Black people. Like, I, mm-hmm. yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> and that's, and that's, just, that's interesting to me as well, because I didn't know that either until I started reading The Color of Law this year. I'm like, how did we both go through architecture school and like I racial covenants know. weren't really a thing that was covered? my mind sorry back to it (laughs) and then how divided or separated the city really is like Mm -hmm. even though it's predominantly black and now it's like half and half and how the goal is to eradicate the goal is to eliminate black people from dc that's the goal like that's the goal and it's always been the goal from the get-go even when marion barry was around he recognized that and how he employed Black architects and mm-hmm. Black construction firms and Black engineers to build the city. And now all that is being erased. Yeah, I think the the interesting thing from the covenant piece and kind of getting back to the idea of eradication, it's kind of the desire to not have Black people be at an equal level. Because there, but even within the covenants, there was always a clausal, you know, can't rent or lease or sell to a black person and basically a black person can only occupy this space if they're in a subservient role but so it was like it wasn't like there was a we've never seen a black person we don't want a black person in this space it's more of a we don't want a black person who thinks that they're at our level in this space if they want to clean the house sure fine cut the grass walk the kids yeah but not actually live here and be equal And going back to urban renewal, another thing that I learned was that it was a two-parter. So you had Southwest One and you had Northwest One and how they treated the eradications differently. So Mm -hmm. Southwest One was the first and they just took people's land and just, you know, basically what they do to this day. They come up and say, hey, we have this plan and we're going to take your home or we're going to offer you some money for your home and then you can come back. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, later on, there may be some stipulations as for you to come back or we, you can come back into this section and mm-hmm. you have to meet these requirements. And, you know, it's, it's just, just rules. And so I was like, I was fine just the way I was. 
mm-hmm. why are you coming up messing all this stuff up? Right. And so with Northwest One, one fascinating thing and that's what that was different was you had all these churches that was mm-hmm. involved. So like with Taiwa House, you had Mount Airy Baptist Church. And with Sibley, which is across the street, Sibley Plaza, which is across the street from Tyler House, that was supposed to be a hospital, but then they converted into housing. And then behind that was Simpson Quarter. And what I learned about Simpson Quarter was it was this guy from Georgetown. And I think he was in law, I believe, and he became a developer. Hmm. And and then there was also Temple Court. And there was one more that I'm forgetting. But you had all these like individuals, all these organizations, and to to be involved in it. And I didn't see anything with Southwest One in terms of the organization of different folks coming together. I didn't see that. I know that with Clofield Witter Smith, she got together with Daniel Kirby. Is that his name? The landscape guy. Oh my gosh, I forget this guy's name. He's this famous landscape guy. There's there's more documentation about Southwest One because of her and her work. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really want to go in too deep. Like, I'm not an expert in that area, only because I didn't grow up there. And mm-hmm. But yeah, so the fascinating part was you had all these churches involved. And, and I was shocked about the university part. And it kind of makes sense, too, because I remember growing up, there was always some tutoring program going on. So I remember when I was like eight or nine, or maybe... 13, 14. I don't know. I remember I had prop math was always my struggle. Mm-hmm. And it was like algebra. And I just could not get it. I remember it was like a tutor and he went to Gonzaga College. And it's it's like a preparatory school. And now as an adult, I was always like wondering like why did they pick Tower House? Or like what maybe it was the proximity, because they there you can walk from where gotcha. is to where Gonzaga, that private school is. And in talking to some other individuals, they were like, yeah, school, the institution also contribute to the area. So it's this community, but it was kind of, the, the culture was so different. And I think the mindset was different. It was kind of like, we are helping all these poor Black people. Let's come in and say your thing. We're going to come in and teach you and tutor you and, you know, maybe find God or something. And you're, you just trying to survive. The, the disconnect, I guess, is it wasn't that way in the beginning. Tower House was meant to be low to moderate income. And that's if, if you rent was $35 a month or something at that time in the sixties, seventies, you know, you should be able to afford it and you're your family. And it's not so much we're poor Black people. It was just, you're just working class people. And I think that's the disconnect. And that's the disconnect today is that it's not so much a handout as much as we just, just give us a job and affordability to live and to eat. And then we will thrive. Right. So then with the, have you found anything that made made it clear when, I guess, when it flipped from just low to moderate income to the subsidized housing, I guess? It was subsidized housing, okay. pretty much. Because even to this day, like when when my family left and they renovated Tyler House, they tried to, they attempted to do a mixed use because of mm-hmm. location and everything. And what happened was you got white flight. And so I'm thinking that 
what happened back then too, is that, yeah, middle income is welcome, but then you have one or two bad apples and then people just leave. And so to keep rent, you become fully subsidized. Right. And then, yeah, and with the white flight, then it's Black people in Tower House probably didn't have the options to leave because of the racial covenants and restrictions that are on there, whereas white residents likely had more housing options to go to. I was surprised because Sarah had mentioned that the area next to it was had those covenants in it. And growing up, I never saw white people in any of those areas. I mean, the fact that even now, like I'm driving down New York Avenue when I see a white person on New York Avenue, that surprises me because for decades, you're right, there, there just wasn't white people in that area. I mean, I remember it was crazy. So I really wanted to take photographs of Tyler House, mm-hmm. um, walking around there. And I did a slow drive by. Mm-hmm. But it was crazy because it was like he had these guys and they were playing craps, shooting dice and mm-hmm. making money. And then a couple of feet away, you have this white couple with a stroller walking down the street. You kind of want to see how this interaction was going to go. Right. And then across from them were like DCPD. So you kind of like just want to look mm-hmm. and see how all of this will play out. But it was just weird. Mm-hmm. And maybe it shouldn't be weird. I mean, maybe. I mean, maybe it's a making space for multiple socioeconomic levels and multiple demographics and the idea of space for all. But it is still like, the, particularly in D.C., when it's when you see a white woman jogging with her headphones in in an area that used to be predominantly Black, that's when you're like, okay, well, this area is gentrifying. Yeah, mm-hmm. which means everything costs a lot. And I mean, I, I, I always go back and ask myself, is this really weird? Mm-hmm. Is this, is this okay? Right. Because I, I'm still finding my own stereotypes amongst mm-hmm. black people, right? Mm-hmm. Like the guys who are playing shooting craps right in broad daylight, throwing money down, rolling the dice, right. all gathered there. Like you're on heightened alert because you don't know if anything's going to pop off or not. Right. And exactly. so, and is that reality? Is that okay? Is that like what, how should I react? Should, should you call the police when you see that? And then at what point does it become dangerous? Should you wait till danger happens or should you just mind your own business and keep on going? What do you do in this situation? As a black woman, like I, you know, as a woman, right. Mm -hmm. In general, you see a bunch of guys, you end up playing this game with yourself. Yeah. And I, I, I try to catch myself and I'm, I probably said something that's not inappropriate and I try to catch myself. I try to check myself because mm-hmm. I don't want to feed into that, that notion, you know? Right. Right. And it's like, it's, it's that subtle, the game of, okay, let me check myself, make sure I'm not playing into that emotion, but then also let me not ignore red flags or my intuition if I really do feel unsafe because I totally get that in terms of just seeing any group of men. I mean, if I'm, if I see frat boys coming towards me, I'm equally petrified as if it's, you know, a group of black males, just because it's the, you don't know, and group think takes over and we are women and we're taught and trained to protect ourselves and all that. I mean, even like, cause this, I went to falling water recently mm-hmm. and driving there, all you see is Confederate flags and Trump yeah. Defense flags. And so it's like, I'm also at heightened alert because yeah. 
I don't want any trouble either, you know? Yeah. So it it works both ways, you and, know? Like, yeah, yeah. And let, let's get into all of it because I think that's a, that's a really good distinction in terms of what we're seeing in the built environment that's triggering us as Black women, even operating in different spaces. So like seeing the, the Confederate flags, the Trump signs, the being on country roads, knowing that if your car breaks down, you're likely not going to find a Black person in that local area to help. So what were some of the other feelings you were having or other fears as you were going to Falling Water? Oh my gosh. Well, I drive an 05 Corolla. Okay. And it did not like driving up the, those mountains <laughs> at all. Like it was struggling. So if, if you're familiar with traveling to Falling Water, we hopped on 70 and then from 70, we went on 68. So 70 and I think 68 too, it's like 70 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. My car was going 65. If oh. I was trying to do 70, <laughs> it was like, wait a minute. So right next to the speedometer to the left is that other thing. I don't know what you call odometer. I don't know what you call it. Mm-hmm. And it goes from one all the way up to like, I think seven or eight or whatever. Uh-huh. And usually it hovers around one or two, maybe three. When I try to floor it, it was like, <laughs> like it was just... So and when I, exactly. And then my brakes started like making noise. So I was petrified. If I was to break down, mm-hmm. wh- what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Right. Hours away from home, like what am I going to do? Right. Um, so that's one thing. And then it's interesting though, because when we finally got to the site and you walk up and stuff, and everybody knows of Falling Water. I did not, I knew about it, but mm-hmm. I didn't like read about it. Like I, I got the logist, you know, he did yeah. some in the forties, like 1939, whatever. And he did this cantilever over the water and it was, uh, you know, right. it was, that's what you learned. But I didn't know it had like a servant's quarters up top. Mm-hmm. And so traveling up and you go see the servant quarters and then you see the like a little path for them to enter the house to do their thing, mm-hmm. their separate entrance. I started thinking about who were these people that were serving the homeowners. Mm-hmm. So when you go there, you enter this little town and because it was Labor Day weekend, everybody was out and you did white water rafting and it was crowded. Like people were just everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I saw these black kids on their bikes. I wondered where do they live? Mm-hmm. And I I started thinking back then and how everything was segregated, especially up there. You know, you had the whites only and you had colors. Mm-hmm. So I'm like imagining that they were not allowed to be in this town and, you know, enjoy the water. They probably had a separate area that they had to go to. As architects, we don't talk about that. Who were the servants? I'm pretty sure it's like online somewhere. I just have to do my research. And who were the laborers? Who made, who who were at the quarry to bring down the stone? Like, who were these people? Right. I mean, who even- Who built these homes? Yeah. Exactly. And like, and even today, I don't know that we do a great job as architects to really make sure that we're giving- credit to the different subs and GCs that are actually building the buildings that we're designing. It's like, yeah, okay, this contractor this or this construction company is building it, but we don't know the actual people who are doing it. So I think it's, that's a, that's a good point that we're still not good at giving credit to the people who are actually building these buildings, knowing that most of them are people of color. 
Mm-hmm. So why don't we pivot a little bit? Talk, let's talk a little bit about some of the influences on uh, your career early on. In particular, I wanted to have you talk a little bit about Barbara Laurie and the impact she had on your career so far, just because I never got a chance to meet her, but I've heard so many things about her legacy and I'd love to have it continue being talked about a little bit on this podcast. Oh my gosh. Like she was great. Like I, she was, she wasn't a mother, definitely not. She wasn't a sister. She was, she was, she was like my best friend, except Mm -hmm. I only talked to her every so often. (laughs) Um, I grew up with her again. I did my internship at Deborah Pinnell. And this was like earlier on and after school, I would just pop up there. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just Barbara. It was, you know, Danny and Anthony and, you know, I rarely saw Marshall, but, you know, Marshall knew me and right. Paul knew me. And so, and, you know, they would have Noma events there and it was, it was a family. It was truly a family. And I thought this was the norm. Like I, I didn't know anything else. I would, they, their office was 717 D street Northwest. And I went to school without walls. So I would walk from walls to there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I go up to the top floor and they had like a two story floor, but the second story was open space. And so Barbara had the corner on the second floor and she would be on the phone and she'd be working or whatever. And I usually go there, graduated high school, of course, in college years, I would visit them and we would do lunch mm-hmm. and I would sit there late. You know, I didn't care. It was like, whatever. And I would go through her magazines. I would steal her magazines <laughs> and, you know, we would go out to, to dinner and it would be somewhere around gallery place or whatever. And we would just talk. We would talk about life. We would talk about me and what's going on in my struggles with school or work or whatever. She would talk about her and her personal life. And I would talk about my personal life. And it was whatever I had a career challenge, wherever I felt like I can't do architecture anymore. Mm-hmm. She would be there. And I miss that so much. She would just, cause she knew me mm-hmm. and she, she knew where I came from. So it was, and you know, I knew her, her ambitions and her, I remember when she was doing the 200 and she was having her students do all the research and stuff. I remember we was talking about her getting like fellowship and she kept procrastinating and procrastinating. And I was like, what are you doing? Why are you procrastinating? She's like, it's not enough the time. And then when she was, it was, I remember that year when she became the first black female AIADC president. And that was the year because it was her. And then Marshall became the first black AIA president and then mm-hmm. I won an award for from AIADC and so it was like this huge celebration yeah and we went there was this like Indian restaurant and that we went to and to celebrate and stuff and I loved this Indian restaurant it was so good it was expensive as hell and I was <laughs> like I was like we got to go there but you're paying it was just like it was she was beyond a mentor like she was way beyond a mentor to know her from I was like 15 to Till she passed away. And that's a long time to know somebody. Yeah. And so when, when everything went down, it was like devastating. I remember I was at work 
And I was perusing Facebook and everybody was like, oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. Like, I can't believe she's gone. And I was like, mm-hmm. wait a minute, what's going on? And so right. I called her. The first oh. thing I did was call her. Yep. And I was like, there's this horrible prank saying that you're dead. So come yeah. on, like, you know. Yeah. And I was like, this, and then I saw Kathy Dixon post something. I was like, oh, fuck. Like, she's dead. Right. I left work. I immediately left work and I ran down to their office. And at that time they moved right next to the convention center and it was closed. And then I ran over to her house because she lived before U Street. And Mm -hmm. that's when I randomly ran into Kathy Prigmore. And we just, we eventually went into a restaurant, but we just sat somewhere on U Street and we was just in shock. And we just, we, we consulted each other. And it was the way that she passed. It was like you, you go over it over and over again. And you're like, how could, how could I have prevented this? How could I have do something to, to stop this or to, to maybe, what can you do? It was, it was, it was her time. And right. I, I went to the wake. I didn't go to the funeral. And I, I don't, to this day, I haven't visited her at all. And I think she's in New York. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. And I didn't, I didn't even investigate where she was to this yeah. day. She, yeah, she was a huge, huge influence on me to this day. And no one can replace her. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing. Whenever I get the chance to honor someone's legacy like that, I wanted to acknowledge that and take the time and knowing how much of an impact she had on your life, your career. I just wanted to make sure that we talked about it a little bit. So then, I also want to mention yeah. real quick is that she had lupus and okay. it, it's a testament to her strength because she was always in pain and she suffered hair loss. Mm-hmm. So she always wore a wig and it, and it affected her skin also and she was always tired mm-hmm. but she kept going it's kind of like with, with Chadwick almost it's kind of like with her you you physically saw certain things mm-hmm. but then you like oh well you just brushed it off or you know you're like like whatever but it was like part of our friendship is that I knew what she was going through and it like that was the amazing thing that that she kept going that's the thing that I also carry is that her her strength Mm -hmm. she was a teacher she was part owner of a firm like she was you know 51% owner of the firm at the time I mean she was going after these huge projects that you know like she was she was president one year she was gonna be FAI she was she was doing it Mm -hmm. and all with physical pain and I've, I've yet to meet anyone else like her. I've, I've come close, but no one that I, that I know of right. can, went through that. Gotcha. All right. Well, I know that we have covered a lot of things. Any other things you want to cover before we wrap up? No, that's about it. I'm, I'm still doing my research. Architecture is Political is my podcast. Nakia has also been mentioned as well as on you have influenced me greatly also and even the people like you are so connected i i I grab all the people you know and i dump (laughs) them on my podcast and so it's just like 
<laughs> Thank you for your network. <laughs> you're so welcome. Like, I love what you're doing. And I'm just so excited to be able to uh, expose you to, and more people to you. Because I'm like, oh, yeah, you need to talk to her because she's doing she's doing cool things. So I'm excited about it. But thank you. So then we'll put in, on, in the show notes, I'll put links to the podcast and other places people can find you online. And thank you for jumping on the podcast and exploring more of the tangible remnants of different things in your life and what's connected in your profession. Thank you. Hey, listeners. I have an exciting announcement. I decided to launch a membership program for the show where you have a chance to support me and the show directly. I love creating this show and it means the world to me that you all tune in to keep hearing me week after week. But it takes an immense amount of time and energy to produce. I want to keep the show going and I want to invest in its growth. And I also want you to become a partner with me in this journey. That's why I'm excited to give you a chance to officially become a supporter of the show at glow.fm slash archispolly, A-R-C-H-I-S-P-O-L-L-Y, or by clicking the link in the show notes. It's quick and easy. It takes less than 30 seconds and just takes clicking a link in the show notes and using Apple or Google Pay. You don't have to create any new logins and you can contribute as much or as little as you like. If this show is part of your day or week and you like what I'm doing, then visit glow.fm slash archespolly, all one word, and support me and the show in any way you can today.